Hey, remain standing for just a second. Remain standing. I just want to pray a blessing over you. I don't know what you need today. I, I don't know why you showed up at this. Some of you show up because you got to check the box and you, you have to get attendance here. Others of you are in a desperate place and you know you need a touch from God today. So I know I'm speaking to a wide variety of students here today. Some of you grew up in an atmosphere that you've never seen something like this, but your heart is longing for what it is. And others of you, this might be a normal atmosphere. But God knows what you need today. You're not here by mistake or by coincidence. This isn't just an ordinary Thursday or Friday exercise we have to get through. But I really believe for a couple of you, it's a divine appointment. I believe God sent me on assignment today to speak to some of you. And for the three or four of you, you'll know at the end of this if God sent me here for you. And so, Father, I ask that you would allow your sons and daughters right now to feel your warm embrace. I pray that they would hear your laughter. I pray that they would see your smile and sense your presence. And for those that are in a dark place, Lord, I ask that you would lift their chin just enough to see beyond the chaos of the situation to see where their help comes from. But Father, we open up our hearts right now. We ask that you would rest in this moment. We ask that you would speak mightily. May you speak a word that would change the trajectory of somebody's life. Somebody's making choices right now they know are not aligned with the purpose of their life. And they've been resisting it. But in this moment, they would yield to the glory and goodness of our God. We love you. We praise you. In your precious and mighty name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey. I gotta be really honest, so I need to confess, I am here on very selfish reasons. Um, because I grew up in Minnesota. And uh, yeah, you betcha, sure, don't you know. A little, little, little town called Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. Has anybody ever heard of Sleepy Eye, Minnesota? And uh, I was born in New Ulm, raised in Sleepy Eye. And I'm here for very, very selfish reasons. Uh, I grew up one of five kids. Lonnie, Luann, Leslie, Larry, and Lance. Is a good Catholic family from Minnesota. It was a bonus because by the time your mom got the right name, you're out of the room. It was one of those blessings. But we grew up in a home that was not like this. If I'm honest, the first time I got drunk, I was five. The first keg party I threw, I was 11. And I paid for college one red solo cup at a time. I didn't meet Christ until graduate college. And so I remember sitting in an environment like this for the very first time because a friend invited me to a Bible study. And I went to it, and, and, and I didn't feel like I belonged there. But it planted a seed in my heart that as I went back to the bar that night, I started to sense, man, I really don't belong here either. So I started living in between two worlds. You ever live like that? You ever been in a space like I'm between two worlds? I know I'm praising God with this hand on Saturday night or on Sunday morning, but on Saturday night I was lifting up this hand with a red cup. And I lived in that for a long time, but it was in that moment I came home one night in graduate college, I look in the mirror and I'm becoming the person I hate the most. My dad, I look in the mirror, I'm like, the person I've been running from my whole life, I'm becoming. And it was in that moment that I felt the presence of Christ and I confessed with my mouth and believed in my heart and he forgave me of all of my sins and he became my savior. But it wasn't until really about six years later that he became my Lord. So I love what President Hagen said. It's like that idea, is he Is he Lord? He's my savior. I got my eternal ticket punched, but is he my Lord? Have I submitted my life to him? So my family, the pattern that I grew up in with the, the alcohol and all those things, my family's still doing all that. I've got three nieces within 30 minutes of this location right now. They're all college age. And today, it, my wife, we, we had to pray about it. I almost didn't come. This is a picture of my family back in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, I had to get my wife's blessing because today is actually our 22nd anniversary. 
Yeah, it's our 22nd anniversary. That's my family, my wife, Janet, and my four kids. And uh, in worship, I was weeping because my nieces, three of them are within 30 minutes of this place, and they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with church. My brother thinks I've gone off the deep end. I talk to him about once a year. My, one of my nieces who lives within 30 minutes of this place, her name is Nicole. I haven't talked to her in 10 years because her dad was such a dysfunctional father because he went through three marriages that on the day she turned 18, the first thing she did is she changed her last name because she wanted nothing to do with my side of the family. And I need your help, and I'm, this is the selfish part. I can't get her to talk to me, and I can't get her to come to my church, but you're going to walk by her on the streets. You're going to sit in a cafe next to her. You're going to bounce into her. And I just have to believe that God loves my family so much. He's going to send you into their life on assignment. And I need your help. That's why I'm selfishly here. So my wife and I, we prayed like, should I go and miss our anniversary? My wife's like, you got to go because we got to see Jesus reach my family. That's where I need your help. I need your help on that because there are some of the next pastors in the community in this room. Some of the next lawyers, some of the best doctors are going to be in this room. And some of you, God told me to come and tell you this. You think too small of yourself. And when you get caught up in the smallness of yourself, you don't see the greatness of God. And the reality is when you see yourself as small, you walk by my niece, Nicole, and if you're not walking out your calling, you just continue right on, Pastor. And I need your help. I need your help. I, I need you walking in your calling so that you can make yourself available so that my family might come to faith in Jesus. They're not gonna drive to Charlotte, North Carolina, we started our church 17 years ago. We got 20 locations, thousands and thousands of people in an online ministry. They want nothing to do with that. But maybe, just maybe, God's going to position you in one of my niece's life or in one of my nephew's life or in my brother's life so that you could bring Jesus into their marketplace, so that you could bring Jesus into their life. And for the few minutes I have, I just want to plant a thought in your mind because I want to speak over you. You think too small. And if I were to ask you to draw a picture of how you see yourself and I put that up against the masterpiece that God drew in heaven when he created the blueprint called you, those pictures do not align. And I want to speak to that gap that's in there because life is living in the extremes. And I got who I know I'm supposed to be, but here's how I really see myself. And we all live in that space. And you think, well, once I turn 25, that'll get better. Or once I get six figures, that'll get better. Or once I have a corner office or 3,000 square feet, it doesn't go away. And I talk to a lot of people my age that still see themselves as very small. And if you don't see yourself in light of who God says you are, you miss the opportunity to minister to the environments he placed you in. You're not here by mistake or by coincidence. I believe it's divine appointment. And I want to, just for the few minutes I have, I want to give you a couple verses to consider. I'm going to be in the book of 1 and 2 Timothy for just a second. It's my favorite chapter, or my favorite books in the Bible right now. I am enamored with 1 and 2 Timothy. It's penned by this guy named Paul who writes almost half the New Testament. And all the other authors of the New Testament, their books are named according to who wrote it. You know, James or 1 and 2 Peter, it's all according to who wrote it. Paul, all of his stuff are, are titled by who he sent it to. Because if that were the case, we'd be reading 12 and 13 Paul today. The guy wrote that much of the Bible. And so when he pens these letters, because you need to study the Bible in context. Context is who wrote it, why did they write it, and who did they write it to? Paul pens this thing to his protege, Timothy. 
And if you want to read the backstory, the origin story of it, jump back to Acts 16. You could do that for some later study where Paul picks up this teenage boy. He's about 15 or 16 at the time. And he follows his mentor around for some 15 years, 16, 17 years. And then Paul, who's planting churches all over the place, drops Timothy off in the city of Ephesus. Paul had spent three years there planting a church, building a church. Ephesus was this cultural mecca, far east, and, and, and different religions and Hellenistic thought, and these intellectual elites were in the city. But Paul, he could slam. The dude was brilliant. He could get into arguments and just assassinate you with his words and just cut you down. Imagine little Timothy watching his, his mentor go like, oh, snap. Because when Timothy starts following Paul, his voice hadn't even dropped. He's got four armpit hairs and he has no idea what he's doing. He was a teenage boy. And now Paul says, you're going to be tapped on the shoulders to lead this thing in the city of Ephesus. What did that feel like for Timothy? He's following his mentor, the one he esteemed. He's Paul. And I'm Timothy. I think he felt very small. And so when Paul is penning these letters, 1 Timothy, he writes when he's in a bougie prison. 2 Timothy, he writes when he's like in Roman, he's like in a cistern, he's in a pit, the Mamertine prison, it was called. It was this hole in the ground that had a gate on top of it. And when he wrote 2 Timothy, he's on death row. He knows Nero's about to behead him. And some scholars actually believe that when Paul wrote it, by the time Timothy actually read it, he had been beheaded. Context matters. And Paul writes these letters in his last moments, and it's his last treatise, it's his last words. And if any of us were on the end of our life and we knew it was about to expire, and we had one letter to send, one text message to send, who are you sending it to? What would you want to tell them? Context matters. I believe Paul loved the city of Ephesus, but the way to reach the city of Ephesus is to lead the leader of Ephesus, Timothy. Because what you believe about yourself determines who you become. I know that sounds a little sacrilegious, doesn't it? God said it, that settles it. No, it doesn't. Unless you believe it. You become what you believe. You don't believe me? Let me tell you this way. I used to teach college classes in sports medicine. So I taught classes on nutrition and, and anatomy and physiology. And I know a lot about macronutrients and micronutrients and all those things. And there's a difference between believe and know. I know a lot about vegetables. And I can tell you why vegetables are good for you. You should eat a lot of them. I know a lot of information. Do you know how many vegetables I eat in a month? About one. Because I don't believe it. Belief is not a language, it's a lifestyle. And if I were to examine the last three months of your life and let me see the lifestyle that shows me what you believe, what do you believe about yourself? Not the way you talk, but the way you live. The, the internal dialogue matters more than the external dialogue. Because in here it's like, oh, praise God, president, praise God. But at night you're cussing yourself out because you feel like an idiot. I remember when I was in third grade, I could take you back to the moment and tell you the button-down shirt with my cowboy boots. In third grade, the special ed teacher comes to our door. Give me Larry. Give me Larry Bry. And the special ed teacher calls me out of the room. And by the time I got to the door, my buddies were laughing at me. And they called me all these disparaging words. Have fun. And they called me stupid and dumb. And it started with them saying it. But within about 10 steps, I started to believe it. 
See, the problem was I wasn't reading very good. They thought I had a learning disability, so they put the label on me, learning disabled. But then they realized after about two months, they actually checked my eyes. And I could, it wasn't an intellectual issue. It was an eyesight issue. I just needed glasses. They put glasses on my face, but that did not fix how I saw myself. The lens that you see yourself is really how you see God. How do you see yourself? I think you see yourself as too small. I think you see yourself as insignificant. And that happened in third grade. And I grew up on a pig farm in, in, in Sleepy Eye. And we would clean the barns before school. And we were really poor, like free government cheese poor. So I would go clean the barns in the morning. And then I'd eat free government cheese wearing my thick Coke bottle glasses. And if I'm really honest, I still smell the barns in certain moments. I'm a leader of one of the greatest churches on the planet. I got a mortgage with four kids and a beautiful wife, but I still feel like the kid who doesn't belong with the learning disability. And the problem isn't what God says about me. The problem is how I see my Self. So when Paul writes to Timothy, there's a corporate message he's, he's speaking because these are part of the pastoral epistles. This and Titus, if you want to get into serving in the local church, great place to camp out because it's going to give you all kinds of theology to understand about leading people and corporate worship and what do I do with false teachers and all that stuff. But there's a very personal thread that's woven through both of these letters to Timothy, and it is a personal message. And Paul calls Timothy son seven times in these two letters. He says, my true son, my spiritual son. Who's your spiritual father? For me, one of the greatest challenges in my life was finding a spiritual father because I did not have an earthly father that gave two rips about me. And some of you are unsettled in your soul because you don't have anybody who believes in you. I love this campus. I've only been here this morning with you, President Hagan. Thank you for being a spiritual father to these kids. Thank you for creating a place that you believe in them even more than they believe in themselves. Thank you for creating that kind of environment because that environment matters. So Paul, thank you. One per thank you for one person clapping. Okay, let me give you a couple quick verses. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, because 1 Timothy, it, it, I think it's a fighting book. Because the book ends of the chapter, in chapter one, he's gonna say this. He says, here, here a trustworthy, in verse 15, it says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. That's what Paul is speaking about himself. But jump down to verse 18. It says, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once spoken over you, that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. What he's laying out for him is, Hey, Timothy, you're going to get into situations that are going to make you feel small, make you feel scared, and make you want to run. But the only way you fight that battle is to remember what's already been spoken over you. You got to remember what's already been declared. You got to remember, you got to remember what I've already told you. You got to remember what the scriptures have revealed. You got to remember what God has already prophesied. And the way you stand strong is by remembering what was already spoken. How do you fight the battle? This is a fighting chapter. And if I were to give you a title for this, it's called Fight For It. At the end of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of the faith. So you got the book of 1 Timothy starting with fight. And in chapter 6, he's saying, fight. this is a fighting thing. And it's actually fascinating. In 2 Timothy, towards the end of it, Paul knows he's about to be beheaded. And he says these famous words in 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, 
I have fought the good fight. It's this beautiful tension in the text that shows a mentor in Paul who's saying, come on, Timothy, I need you to fight. I need you to fight. I'm going to teach you how to fight. And then at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. And here's this master looking at a a, a mentee, and he's teaching him how to fight. How is he teaching him how to fight? Here's the primary thing that I think Timothy was fighting, the personal battle. There were other battles around him, but here's the primary battle, I think. And this is in in, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Famous passage. It's on every youth ministry in the world. It's amazing. What's everybody, like, who's going to go into youth ministry? This is your calling card. This is your rally cry. He says, do not let look anyone down on you because you are young. Here's the problem. Timothy was a grown man with a beard. He was not a teenage boy anymore. The problem was not his chronological age. It was his identity age. I believe that the challenge, the battle that Timothy was fighting as Paul dropped him off in Ephesus was, Timothy, you still see yourself as a boy. You still see yourself as 15 following me around like a puppy just waiting to be told what to do. You are not a puppy. You're not a kid. You're a man. You've got a beard and I need you to lead. That's the battle. Fight for it. The fight is how do you see yourself? Because when I don't see myself who God says I am, I punish the people that I'm leading. And if I want to reach the city of Ephesus, I need to reach Timothy. Because the game you play as a kid is called follow the? Are you a leader? There are many, many families that get sabotaged because the dad is carrying an inferior view of how he sees himself. But the people that get punished are the ones that are following. That's why I don't have time to unpack this whole thing, but let me just give you this one verse In 2 Timothy. So in 2 Timothy, I think the battle is how you see yourself, Timothy. This is why I love 2 Timothy, because he gets into it in chapter 2. And I'm just going to go through these verses. I don't have time to unpack the whole thing. He starts in verse 1. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in you in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust are reliable people who are qualified to teach others. And if I had time right there, I would unpack how Paul is validating the relationship with his son. You then, my son. I love that. I love the voice of a father who's loving his son. You then, my son. Be strong. You're qualified. You're reliable. I know you don't always feel like it. I know you don't always act like it, but you are not labeled according to your lowest behavior. You're labeled according to your highest potential. I see you, and I talk to you, and I speak over you based on your highest potential. Now consider what Paul is about to bring into Timothy's lap. Again, I think Timothy's battle line in his life is he sees himself as a teenager. Consider him standing in the city of Ephesus and now there's an intellectual fight going on and all the people are smarter than him. They know more than him. They're older than him. If he sees himself as a teenager, he runs. How many battles have you run from because you don't see yourself in proper light? That's what's going on here. So in 2 Timothy, he goes on to say this. I'm going to go through it quick. He says, join me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Oh, I love the mental model that Paul is giving Timothy. Timothy, consider seeing yourself like a soldier. Because when you think of a soldier, you think of brave, strong, steadfast, anchored, tough, That's much different than seeing yourself as a teenager. Some of you see yourself too small. 
Maybe you would consider taking on the identity of seeing yourself as a soldier as Paul admonished Timothy. Consider the soldier. Then he says, join me in suffering. Verse four says, no one so serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Verse five, similarly, anyone competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown by except competing according to the rules. When you think of an athlete, I'm not talking about a recreational athlete that works out occasionally. I'm talking about a gold medalist. I have a friend who won a gold medal in Olympic wrestling. She said for four years, I ate four ounces of chicken and broccoli. I would get up and work when everybody else was sleeping. She said, everybody wants the gold, but nobody wants the grind. Maybe you need to upgrade your perspective and how you see yourself and quit seeing yourself as a recreational Christian. No, you're a gold medalist in you. What does it mean for you to train like an athlete who's going to win a gold medal? How would that change your life? You're not going to run from stuff that would normally intimidate you. You stand because you're an athlete. But a teenager, eh, it's optional. Then the last mental model he gives him. He says the hardworking farmer should be, should be the first one to receive their share of the crops. And when you think about a farmer, they understand seasons, planting and reaping. They understand that I put a seed in the ground, it takes some time before I start to see it. Some of you, you put some seeds in the ground, but you're plucking it up so fast you're not letting it grow. Because you're anxious, you're scared. Not because you don't love God, you just kind of despise yourself. And I just love to pray a blessing over you. And for anybody who identifies with that space of seeing yourself as small, God sent me here to talk to you. Why? Because I have to believe God's going to bring my niece, Nicole, into your life. And when you see yourself in the light of Jesus, she'll see the reflection in you. She ain't going to hear it from me. But maybe, just maybe, revival will break out because of what God does in you. Stand to your feet. Close your eyes. I just want anybody who might feel themselves as small to have an opportunity to just say, Lord, that's me. And if that's you, close your eyes. Nobody's looking around right now. This is you and your moment. And we're going to set up an altar in your heart right now. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to just bring that small perspective of yourself and place it in God's hands to put it on the altar. And if that's you, if you're in that space like, LB, that was me today. Would you just raise your hand? I want to know who I'm praying for right now. Anybody feels insignificant, overlooked, unqualified? So, Father, I thank you for your sons and daughters right now. I thank you for the courage to identify, to say, Lord, that's me. I've been labeling myself according to my worst moments. They've been labeling themselves by the things they pray that no one would ever see. But God, you saw them and yet you still love them and yet you still call them forgiven, chosen, holy, righteous because of the finished work of Jesus. So Father, I prayed for fresh wind, fresh fire to fall upon them. I pray that when they get back to that battle line later this afternoon or tonight, you would remind them that they're a soldier, not a teenager, that they're an athlete, not a kid that they are a farmer, not someone who's a mistake. Father, we love you. Thank you for these few precious moments we have together to worship you. But personally, I ask that you would touch my nieces. May they feel your forgiveness. 
may these people in this room realize that they're not mistakes, they're not random, but they're on assignment. And you're gonna send them into the streets of this city and the towns in this community and places around the world. May they be looking for you at work and join you there. We declare revival will spring forth from this place. We declare that the plans you have for them will prosper, will grow, because you are a good God. We love you, Jesus. In your precious and mighty name, everybody said, amen.